From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, comic writer and actor Sam Jay. A lot of her comedy is about being a black, masculine-of-center lesbian. Her HBO series, Pause, is like a house party in which she leads conversations with friends and fellow comics about subjects like queer culture, relationships, black conservatives, and racism in America. Before Pause, she was a writer on Saturday Night Live. Also, women's basketball star Dawn Staley. In April, she won her second NCAA championship as head coach of the South Carolina Gamecocks. She played in the WNBA and won Olympic gold medals as a player and head coach. We'll talk about how women's basketball has changed and about growing up in the projects of North Philly, playing basketball with the boys. And Justin Chang will review the new David Cronenberg thriller. My first guest, Sam Jay, is a comic, writer, and actor who has her own HBO series called Pause with Sam Jay. A lot of her comedy relates to being a black, masculine-of-center lesbian who didn't come out until her early 20s. Her show Pause is kind of like a house party, with Sam Jay as the host and her actual friends, fellow comics, and TV writers as her guests. They have lively talks about subjects like queer culture, relationships, black conservatives, money and power, and racism and tribalism in America. Last week, she talked about how her brother's life was changed by being in prison. Season one premiered a year ago. Season two is in progress. Before pause, Sam Jay was a writer on Saturday Night Live, where her sketches included Black Jeopardy, including the sketches with Chadwick Boseman in his Black Panther role as T'Challa, and Eddie Murphy as his character, Velvet Jones. She joined SNL in 2017 and left to co-create Pause. She also co-created and co-stars in the series Bust Down, along with Chris Redd, who she worked with on SNL. Her latest stand-up special, Three in the Morning, is streaming on Netflix. Sam Jay, welcome to Fresh Air. It's a pleasure to have you on our show. So how would you describe your show to someone who's never seen it? Oh, wow. Um... That's always tough because it's not, it's a weird show. But uh, I guess I would say it's a drunken house party where you get to soberly go out and like prove your point afterwards is kind of how I always looked at it. Like, what if you could take all the stuff you argue about at a house party and actually go out in the world and find out if these things that you're standing on and saying are true or false or what your assumptions are of what people in these situations feel like. What if you could go out in the world and actually talk to the people that are going through it and have conversations with them to kind of see if you were wrong or right. Do you find it easy to disagree with friends without your friend or you taking the disagreement personally? Yes. Yeah. Probably because I'm a a comic and we, we spend a lot of time yelling at each other and disagreeing. And it's a very, <laughs> it's just a very, like, uh, argumentative space comedy. So I guess for that reason, yeah, it, it, it's not really hard for me to not agree with someone's perspective, but be fine with them as a person. So I want to play a clip from the current season, season two of Pause. And this is from the first episode. And you're talking to someone, I, sh- I should add, in addition to the house party aspect, you do interviews on each episode and a sketch as well. So this is one of the interviews, and you're talking to uh, a woman who was formerly in GLAAD, the uh, LGBTQ advocacy group. She is a white woman who's wearing a men's suit, and in this interview, you're talking about how, as a black 
lesbian, you don't really relate to what's considered like the gay community. Do you think that the black community is uniquely homophobic? As uniquely homophobic as what other community? I know how this play, right? So if I hear something, I won't go like, oh man, that's hella homophobic or you're a bad dude. I'm like, all right, man, you being silly or you're being funny. Mm -hmm. Whereas a white ear that doesn't know how we play may hear that very same thing and go, oh, this person needs to be educated. This person doesn't quite understand what's wrong with what they're saying. As a black person, a lot of times I'm like, yo, I don't even feel gay, right? Because what gay (laughs) culture is feels like it has absolutely nothing to do with me. So it's like, I don't know. I just like just hanging out with my homies because I don't really know what the hell that is, right? And when that is happening, how does a culture or, or a group really grow? So that was an interview from Pause with Sam J. So Sam, you said you don't really feel gay because what gay culture is doesn't seem to have anything to do with you. What is it about gay culture that makes you feel excluded? And when you say gay culture, what is it that you mean? Well, uh, when I say gay culture, I mean the mainstream representation of gay culture. Um, and just like most main, mainstream representations of culture in America, it it lacks black identity. So when I was growing up and I'm learning about what lesbians are through media and TV and what gay is, it's for me, what I saw was a lot of like Lilith Fair lesbians and uh, a lot of, you know, um, show tunes quoting dudes and I just didn't see a lot of blackness in that and I didn't see a lot of my culture or anything that looked like anything I grew up around and so it felt like something just so far from me that I couldn't wrap myself around seeing myself ever in anything like that and then later in life when I discovered my sexuality I still didn't feel necessarily gay, as in the way the mainstream culture presents it, I didn't really like the gay clubs that were being offered to me. I didn't really like the hangs that were being offered to me. I didn't really want to go to a club and only hear house music and, uh, you know, watch Golden Girls on the screen and, and yell quotes back and forth. Like, that just wasn't how I had a good time. And so I didn't see a lot of, like, how my culture chills and hangs out within this culture. And so for me, it was a a huge disconnect of like, I don't, I am of this, like, as far as my sexuality, but I don't feel of this as far as my community. When you came out, you were living in Atlanta. Describe black gay culture in Atlanta the way you saw it, the way you experienced it when you were coming out in your 20s. Yeah, so the thing is like, you know, I used to move back and forth a lot. So I was in Boston and Atlanta a lot. So I saw kind of both what Boston had to offer, what Atlanta had to offer. Atlanta, because it was a black city, it was extremely different, of course. It felt more like me. It felt like black culture. It just felt like black people who happened to like people of the same sex. You still got to listen to your hip-hop music in the club. You still was going to hear Future. There was, there was going to be Hennessy. <laughs> there was going to be like a good time as to what I knew a good time to be. And it didn't feel as isolating as when I would go out in Boston to a gay club. And I was like, I don't even, I don't fit in here. Like what came first for you doing stand up or coming out? And I'm interested in hearing what your very early comedy was like. 
Mm, well, I tried stand-up when I was about, like, 20 or so. Um, it wasn't that great. I didn't really have any perspective or much to say. And then I didn't do it for a long time until I was, like, 29. Um, and that, at that point, I had come out, and um, I had a lot to say. I had a lot of perspective. I had lived a good amount of life by then. I can't really play anything from your 2020 comedy special (laughs) (laughs) because there's just too many words that you can say on a podcast, but not on the radio. So let's try to like talk it through, give our listeners a sense of it without using the words that we are not allowed to use in this medium. So um, there's, (laughs) there's one thing that you do where you talk about running into a guy you'd been with, you know, who'd been kind of a boyfriend before Mm -hmm. you came out, and you looked at each other, and you realized you looked just like he did. Would you describe that moment (laughs) for us? I had went back home. I had went back home to Boston, and I bumped into him at a bar, and we were dressed pretty similar. And and he uh, he had asked me about if he was the reason that... uh, I was gay now. Did he do something? Which I thought was quite idiotic because we dated at like 15. Um, so it was just kind of like, what do you? Th- what impact do you think you could have had on my life that <laughs> altered me into this? It's like, no, you had nothing to do with it. Don't don't try to take credit. The situation wasn't that memorable or deep, but it was funny that um, it came kind of full circle in that way, you know where you kind of walk into a bar and you see a dude you slept with and you're like, we're probably wearing the same underwear. You know what I mean? Like, this is this is weird. <laughs> um, had you dressed very masculine before you came out? Was he surprised at how you looked? Uh, I think for sure he was surprised because I, I didn't dress very masculine. I mean, I think there was like a period, but that was like the 90s and... You know, when you I was younger in the 90s, like, girls were wearing baggy clothes. TLC was a thing. It was, like, not a big deal to be a girl in baggy clothes. And then by the time I got to, like, the end of my middle school days, high school, that had transitioned into something else. So I definitely think he was... And I, I had no hair. I had cut all my hair off by that point. So it was definitely very different. I looked very, very different. Did you feel much more like yourself? Yes, 100%. I always look back at that person and I'm like oh man I was trying to be something that I thought I was supposed to be and I didn't even have any idea that's what I was doing which is insane but I was definitely trying to fit into something that didn't fit me at all I always uh, say like even if I go back to being straight like whatever dude I'm with is gonna have to be okay with a chick with a Caesar because I'm not growing my hair back I'm never putting heels back on like there's just things you'll never catch me doing again you wore heels? I definitely wore heels. Well, I was I was a young lady, you know, trying to get boys. I was I was doing what girls did to get guys, you know. So another funny bit relates to packing for a trip with your now fiance. And she's packing three pieces of luggage. Tell us what you're thinking cuz I, I don't want to do your bit and we can't play it for the special. <laughs> Uh, um, well, she does it all the time and still does it. And uh, it finally kind of had came to head because we were going to Europe. And I kept telling her, like, hey, we're going to Europe and we're going to all these different, you know, cities. So you might not want to overpack because the traveling is just, it's different, you know? Things, are, hotel rooms are smaller there. Just, it's different. And you may not want to have all these bags to lay lug around. 
And she proceeded to pack three bags. And I was like, well, why are you packing three bags when you only have two arms? Like, I just don't get why you're packing more bags than you clearly can handle. Because your expectation is that I'm going to handle it. And that's very crazy to me to <laughs> to do something based on what you think I'm going to do and not what you can do for yourself. But I also think that's just a, like way I was raised type of thing, you know. But you also say <laughs> that just because you're a masculine of center lesbian doesn't mean we're brought up with a sense of chivalry. <laughs> you have no sense of yeah, chivalry. Yeah, no, <laughs> not at all. I have two brothers that took care of me and took out the trash. Like, I don't, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, I don't feel that way at all. So, so on a more serious level, what's the gender n- nature of your relationship if you're, if you're comfortable talking about that? Do you feel like you're supposed to take on like the man's role and she's supposed to take on the traditional woman's role in the relationship or are you beyond traditional roles like that? I think it's a little messy. I think some of it, yeah, it's very traditional. And then some of it is not, you know what I mean? Like I do pay all the bills. I am the breadwinner in my house, you know, like I do open doors for her now. That was a big fight and to do, but I do it now. Um, I don't, I, I didn't understand why I needed to hold the door. She has arms, but whatever. I do it now because it's not worth fighting about. Uh, <laughs> but I do do some of the traditional masculine things. And she definitely does some of the traditional feminine things. But then, like, she fixes most of the things in the house because I don't know how to fix things. You know what I mean? Like, she's an interior designer and, like... She knows how to, like, measure and cut things, and I don't, you know, so I don't touch that, and she kind of does that. So I think it's like most households, you know, once you dig into them, it's a little bit fluid, you know what I mean? My guest is comic, writer, and actor Sam Jay. Her HBO series, Pause, is in its second season. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break, and film critic Justin Chang will review Crimes of the Future, the first movie in eight years from director David Cronenberg. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with Sam Jay. She's a comic, writer, and actor who hosts the show Pause with Sam Jay on HBO. It's in its second season. The first airings are Friday nights. Her latest stand-up comedy special, Three in the Morning, is streaming on Netflix. When she auditioned to join the cast of Saturday Night Live, she got hired, but as a writer, not a performer. So you were surprised that instead of a performer, they asked you to be a writer. You hadn't seen yourself as a writer. You'd only written for yourself. Um, So that must have been a big transition. Um, You did a few of the Black Jeopardy sketches. So I thought we'd play an excerpt of one of them. And this is one of the most famous Black Jeopardy um, sketches. It's the one with Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa, his role from uh, Black Panther as the leader of the fictional African kingdom of Wakanda. So can you set up for any of our listeners who don't watch Saturday Night Live, can you set up what Black Jeopardy is? Oh, Black Jeopardy is... A form of Jeopardy, where the questions are centered around Black culture, and basically uh, only people invited to the cookout would know the answers. And there's often like a white person on the panel. There's usually like 
yes. two black people and one white person who's kind of clueless about all the questions of black culture. But in this case, it's Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa, the leader of the fictional African kingdom of Wakanda from Black Panther. And um, so let's hear the very beginning of the sketch. And um, Kena Thompson plays the host. Also in the sketch is Leslie Jones and Chris Redd. Let's take a look at our categories. All right, we got grown ass. Oh, hell no. Fitna. Girl, bye. I ain't got it. And as always, white people. All right, Shanice, you're our returning champ. You pick. Okay, let's go to all hell now for a hundred. Okay, the answer there, your barber has a two-hour wait, but he says there's an empty chair up front. Rashad. What is all hell no? There's a reason your chair empty. You're damn right. You're damn right there. You can end up looking like the weekend. Okay. <laughs> okay, now let's skip a little ahead in the sketch. Let's stay with grown ass for 600. All right. You send your smart ass child here because she thinks she grown. T'Challa. What is to one of our free universities where she can apply her intelligence and perhaps one day become a great scientist? <laughs> okay, well, the answer we was looking for was out my damn house. <laughs> but you know what? I'm gonna give it to you, T'Challa. Y'all must not have no mean streets in Wakanda. Nice. <laughs> All right, the board is yours. Very well. Let's go to our hell now for 800. Okay. The policeman says there's been some robberies in your neighborhood and asks if you have any information. What is, not only do I tell this man what I know, but I also assist him in tracking down the offender. After all, our ministers of law enforcement are only here to protect us. Is this correct? It should be. <laughs> but uh, I'm thinking you haven't spent much time in America. <laughs> Let's just hear about today's prizes. Johnny! Thanks, Darnell. Today's Black Jeopardy winner will receive used to hold margarine. Versatile plastic containers that used to hold margarine. Put whatever you want in there. And well done steaks. If I see a speck of red, it's going back. You better cook my food with well done steaks. And by Sprite. How did we become the black soda? We don't know. Sprite. Back to you, Darnell. <laughs> okay. That's a, such a great sketch. Um, when you knew that Chadwick Boseman was going to be the guest host, how did you decide to write a Black Jeopardy sketch around him? Um, well, that really, you know, Black Jeopardy is super collaborative. So that is a, you know, Brian Tucker and Michael Che vehicle that's been there since before I got there. And um, when... Chadwick came, Tucker was kind of just like, I'm thinking I want to do a Black Jeopardy, like, uh, I'm trying to think of a, an angle on, you know, him being his character from Black Panther. And we just kind of um, jammed on it and came up with the angle of, like, you know, he's from a place where everybody's Black and he's not dealing with the same injustices. So his perspective would be that of a superhero and, like, just more correct. And it should be kind of like, 
yeah, these answers are wrong, but they shouldn't be wrong vibe, you know, versus some other Black Jeopardy's vibes, which every one tries to kind of take a different play. So you do a lot of jokes about your girlfriend, now fiance, and some of them are actually <laughs> sexual and some of them are just about, you know, your relationship. So you have a series of videos in which you watch excerpts of your stand-up together and then you talk about her reaction. And she's very, uh, she's really good about it. You know, she says, even <laughs> if I don't like a joke, even if it seems like hurtful to me, like I don't want to hold her back. I don't want to like interfere with her doing her thing and her doing her comedy. I think that's really uh, very generous. <laughs> I'm not sure everybody would feel that way. I think it's awkward when when someone who you're really close to is like a memoirist or a stand-up comic and they draw draw on their own lives for their material because you're going to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Do you show her your comedy before you go on stage? She's usually like with me when I come up with jokes or she, she's seen it like, cause she comes to a lot of shows like when I'm working on material or like figuring it out or like if something happens in the, in the house and I'm like dying laughing at her about something, I'll usually be like, I'm going to talk about this. And she'll be like, go ahead. You know what I mean? And sometimes it's tough though, you know, like, this season of pause, I have a whole episode about cheating and our relationship and how I cheated in our relationship and what that did to our relationship and kind of totally just about relationships in general and how they grow and change and et cetera. And it definitely was hard and it, it definitely caused a lot of fights in the house. So it's not always easy to do. Do you go through a, a trade-off in your mind, like a calculation before doing a joke or talking about something on a show, trying to weigh, is the material worth a fight in the relationship? For sure. And does the material always win over the relationship? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the artist in me, I guess. Yeah, you know. Does your girlfriend, in spite of that, uh, ever punch up your jokes? Sometimes. Sometimes. I have to give her that credit. She'll, yeah, she'll add a, like, a line or... I'll say something, she'll put a tag on it, because she's very funny. People always ask me who, who makes me laugh. She makes me laugh the most. Um, and I hate it. I hate it when she does a good tag that I, I know I'm going to use, because I'm like, oh, that was really good. I hate it, because then I got to live with her being like, that's my joke, and like all <laughs> that, which <laughs> is annoying. Can you think of a tag that was hers? No, I, I, as soon as I take it from her, I forget she gave it to me. <laughs> so, I'm sure that's for very my reassuring own, <laughs> for my own ego. <laughs> I think they're all just, yours. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like you're living the life you were supposed to have, or that this is a life you never dreamed of? Hmm. Both. I feel both. I feel like I knew there was something greater out there for me. I genuinely feel like that goes for everybody if that's what they want, and. Also, sometimes I look out my apartment window and I go like, whoa, this is insane, you know? So I feel both. Well, Sam J., it's really been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. And congratulations on all the success you've been having. Thank you. This was really nice. Sam J. hosts the HBO series Pause, which first airs Friday nights. The dystopian thriller Crimes of the Future is the first new movie in eight years from David Cronenberg, 
The Canadian filmmaker is known for such mind-bending films as Videodrome, The Fly, and A History of Violence. His latest movie takes place in a not-so-distant future and stars Viggo Mortensen and Lea Seydoux as a pair of performance artists who operate surgically on each other in public. Our film critic Justin Chang has this review. With its graphic images of stomachs being sliced open, organs being removed, and eyes and mouths being sewn shut, David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future is certainly not for the squeamish. But then why, as someone who self-identifies as squeamish, did I enjoy it so much? Maybe it's because while this director loves his gaping wounds and exploding heads, he wields his scalpel here with extraordinary finesse. There's a cool elegance and a disarming playfulness to this movie that pulls you in, even, or especially, at its most grotesque moments. And as with most of Cronenberg's movies, the pleasures are intellectual as well as visceral. Crimes of the Future isn't always easy to watch, but it's an awful lot of fun to think about. The movie takes place in a grim future, where humans have lost the ability to feel physical pain and have started operating on their own bodies. In this thrill-seeking world, surgery is the new sex. Something that a lot of people do for kicks, or even to earn a quick buck from live audiences. Others, like Saul Tenser, played by Viggo Mortensen, and his partner Caprice, played by Lea Seydoux, have elevated it to a form of avant-garde performance art. Saul has a medical condition in which his body keeps producing abnormal organs, which Caprice removes during their nightly shows. As grisly as these public spectacles are, the fact that the characters don't feel pain has a similarly anesthetizing effect on us as viewers. And there's a kinky pleasure to these scenes, too. Saul, lying in a high-tech coffin-like bed called a Sark module, clearly enjoys being sliced open by Caprice's remote-controlled blades. At one point, Saul is approached by a fan named Timlin, who's played by an amusingly twitchy Kristen Stewart. Do you think you would ever let me be a part of your show? Uh, just because I would love to find myself in that Sark module with you with the controls. I would attack that. would definitely fall into the category of new vice. <sighs> That is where I live. One of the funnier things about Crimes of the Future is that it plays like a deadpan satire of the modern art world, in which Saul and Caprice must contend with rivals, fans, and even groupies. But not unlike Saul's restless body, the movie itself keeps mutating, switching genres and sprouting new ideas at will. The story morphs into a noirish mystery, complete with a nosy detective and a couple of power-drill-wielding femme fatales. It's also a bizarrely touching love story, and both Mortensen and Seydoux suggest a deep core of passion beneath their characters' clinical exchanges. The movie is also an ecological parable, in which human biology is changing dramatically in response to a rapidly decaying environment. One key subplot involves an underground group of eco-anarchists who have willfully altered their bodies so that they can digest plastic, and thus consume much of the planet's industrial waste. There's a lot going on here, in other words, and Crimes of the Future spends a fair amount of time unpacking its own premise. 
though with a droll wit that keeps the exposition from sounding too much like exposition. As ever, Cronenberg and his longtime production designer, Carol Spear, are adept at telling their story visually. Some of their more memorable inventions are the devices that Saul uses to offset the effects of his condition, a giant bed that gyrates when he sleeps, or a mechanized chair that aids with his eating and digestion. None of this is exactly new territory for Cronenberg. He actually wrote the script for Crimes of the Future more than 20 years ago, but the movie never got off the ground until now. That may explain why it plays like a return to his career-long obsessions in films like The Fly and Crash, both of which were about how technology is literally reshaping the human body. In his 1983 horror classic, Videodrome, the characters kept saying, Long live the new flesh, a grim mantra that it's hard not to think about in Crimes of the Future whenever a scalpel touches skin. Cronenberg is asking quite sincerely, What are we doing to our planet? And how is that affecting the very composition of our bodies, and in turn, the next phase of human evolution? And not for the first time, he makes brilliant use of his regular collaborator Viggo Mortensen, who starred in earlier Cronenberg dramas like A History of Violence and Eastern Promises. In those movies, Mortensen played physically imposing gangsters. In Crimes of the Future, his character moves slowly and speaks in a raspy voice. There's great tenderness in Mortensen's performance, and he and Seydoux are very moving as two people who can truly be said to love each other, body and soul. That rush of romantic feeling may be the most shocking thing about Crimes of the Future. For all its blood and guts, this movie's biggest organ is its heart. Justin Chang is film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed Crimes of the Future, the new film by director David Cronenberg. It's now out in theaters. Coming up, we hear from women's basketball star, Coach Dawn Staley. She'll talk about being the only girl on the court when she was growing up in a North Philly housing project and about how much she's seen the sport change for women since then. This is Fresh Air Weekend. My next guest, Dawn Staley, is a star of women's basketball as a player and a coach. In April, she won her second NCAA championship as head coach of the South Carolina Gamecocks. She won three Olympic gold medals as a player and one as head coach. At the 2004 Summer Olympics, she had the honor of carrying the flag and leading the athletes to the opening ceremony. She's witnessed the growth in popularity and revenue of women's basketball and is one of the reasons for that growth. In 1999, just two years after the WNBA started play, she joined the WNBA team, the Charlotte Sting. Before that, she played in the short-lived American Basketball League. She has special significance in Philadelphia, the city where our show is produced. She grew up in the Raymond Rosen Housing Projects in North Philly and started her coaching career a few blocks away at Temple University. There are streets named after her near Temple and the Colonial Life Arena in Columbia, South Carolina. I spoke with Dawn Staley May 17th at a WHYY Zoom event, during which she received the WHYY Lifelong Learning Award. Coach Staley, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've reached the heights as a player and as a coach, but when you were first asked to be a coach at Temple University, as we heard, you turned them down. Um, why were you so reluctant to coach, given that you've got such a gift for it, as you later learned? Well, I, I think sometimes when you are 
um, and have been, and that was me at that time. I was singularly focused on my career as a player. I was 29 years old. I was still playing professional basketball. And, and then I get this opportunity, you know, of, of coaching. And I was probably more, more, more afraid of being responsible for young people that's closer to my age than anything. Um, so, so the responsibility part of it really uh, just, just frightened me just a little bit. Um, you were obsessed with basketball from a very young age. What kind of future did you see for yourself in the game? You were born in 1970. The WNBA didn't start until, the games didn't start until 97. And then, and you joined in 99, two years later. Um, In 96, the American Basketball League started, and you were a member of that, but then, you know, it folded within two years. Um, So, like, did you see any kind of future for yourself in basketball as a girl when you were growing up? Outside of outside of like you know the courts in the neighborhood. Well, I, here's the thing. Um, here's the thing about imagination. It gives you an opportunity to dream, even no matter you know how outlandish my dreams were. Like I thought I was gonna play in the NBA. I was a Sixers fan. I knew everything about the Sixers. I thought I was gonna be their their next point guard after Murray's cheeks took us to a 1983 championship. So I thought I was the next point guard up. And that's the that's the thing that kept me going. That is the dream that kept me going, no matter how outlandish it may have been. But I, 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 I dreamt the biggest dream. And although I did not end up in the, the NBA, I ended up in a place where I got a chance to play professionally here in the States. Um, in two professional women's basketball leagues in the ABL and the WNBA, you know, and I and now I get a chance just from playing, from playing the game. Um, although coaching wasn't a dream of mine, just from being around it, you put yourself in the position to to stay in the game. When you decided you wanted to be the next Maurice Cheeks, did you think I'm going to play on the in the men's teams? I'm I'm going to be the first woman in in the NBA. You know, I didn't, I didn't think about being the first. You know, I didn't visualize me just being the first. I just, it was something that, uh, that carrot that was dangled in front of my, in front of me, and it just really guided me to continue to work hard. It guided me to, you know, I mean, I just had an insatiable desire to play basketball. And when you are in a position where you, you've set a goal that's, that's a dream and, and goal goal. You chase it. You chase it. So I didn't I didn't I didn't even see anything besides me being there. Like I didn't even see like names, faces. I just saw me living out my dream of continuing to play basketball um for the Sixers. <laughs> um so women's basketball has really changed since you started playing in women's professional leagues and, of course, the Olympics, too. But um, And part of that change is because of you, because you were such a great player and now such a great coach. Um, it's got become more popular. There's more revenue. Tell us one or two of the things that have changed in women's basketball that you think are, are the most dramatic, and I'm sure you can think of many, many. 
I think that the biggest thing nowadays, um, we've had, you know, the WNBA is starting its 26th year. So um, every young player that is 25 and under, they've had the carrot of the WNBA dangled in front of them. Right, which you didn't have. Yes, I had the NBA. You know, it's the same. It's, yeah, I had the NBA. But 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 when you're able to, to see other women doing something that you want to do, it drives you to work harder. So I think I think be, because of the WNBA, players are are much better because they 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 see dreams are being realized every year when that WNBA draft rolls around in April and people are checking off goals that they had set for themselves, it makes the younger generation work a little harder. So that's what we've had that's prevalent. And, you know, quite honestly, you know, it, women's basketball is in a place where you can make a living. You can make a living as a player. You can make a living as a coach. It's a profession that that was not in existence when I was growing up. You grew up in the Raymond Rosen Housing Projects in, in North Philly. Um, tell us a little bit about what the projects were like then, and you, you grew up in the 70s and 80s. For, for me, you know, the projects was a way of life. Like, I, I, didn't, see, I didn't see myself as poor. Like, I didn't, I didn't, my family didn't see um, ourselves as poor. I mean, we saw ourselves as working class people who, who, who worked hard. You know, like I, I, I grew up in the projects, but the, the lawns in my block were, you know, were maintained. They were, they were. In, I mean, it was incredibly clean. Um, all the 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 people that these lived, are garden apartments, not a high rise. Not yeah, yeah. You here's the thing. All of my siblings that are that are older than me, they they had an experience in the in the high rises. I've never had an experience of living in the high rises, so I I, I think myself I think of myself as a little more bougie, because <laughs> the, the row homes are a little more plush um, than than going through you know the high rises. So I you know we we had lawns, we had we had neighbors. We, we my mom planted flowers and they bloomed and everything looked like like great you know although my mom had to uh, clean houses for other people in order to make ends meet but it was a job and my mom my mom did it to the best of her ability she cleaned people's houses like like a boss like a like a ceo of a of a fortune 500 company so you know i i come from a strong woman who just believed in doing things the right way, no matter no matter what it was. So, I just you know I I I thank God for my mother because she was a discipline. She's a disciplinarian. Like I I feared my mother. Like I did not want to disappoint her. Wait wait wait! Didn't didn't she sometimes use like a cable or a switch of some sort to discipline her children? Extension cords, uh, switch. Switches, anything that was in her reach. Nowadays, that would be considered child abuse. How did you think of it then? Um, I thought it was child abuse then, but there wasn't you know, not one not one finger would pick up a phone to, to call any type of hotline on my mother. Um, but I I look at how I am today, 
you know, and for me, I'm considered probably um, a a hard coach to play for. I'm a I'm a disciplined coach because I grew up in a disciplined household, and I know the impact of being um, a disciplined person. Like a disciplined person is a, and this is a model of mine. A disciplined person can do anything, and and a lot of people will look at that and say. You know, that's so very true. And it is because you can be disciplined in something that's not very beneficial to you and be really good at it. And it doesn't help you. Or you could be disciplined to something that's, you know, super positive and 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 your cup could run up over um, because of that. So I'm more like my mother today than than any other than any other period of my life. And I'm I'm super proud to to be her child. So there's a kind of famous story about you that when you were a kid and you wanted to play with the boys, you'd bring your own basketball and tell them that if they wanted to use the basketball, they had to let you play. Okay, so that was your in. But then what? Did they make it especially hard for you? Did they, How do they feel about playing with a girl? Because I know for a lot of boys, that would be considered like lowering themselves in some way. Yeah, I mean, I mean obviously the newness of having like one girl show up to the court, um, they're, they're not welcoming at all. They, they weren't welcoming and they shouldn't have been. I was treated like a newcomer. Like if it was a new guy that showed up to the court, they're not going to be welcoming to that person unless they prove themselves. Now, because I'm a girl, they're, they're not going to give me an opportunity to prove myself unless I bring my own ball to the court and hope that everybody else forgets to bring theirs. And that was my <laughs> end. So that was my end to get on the court. And after that, you know, if we win, we lost, or if it was a draw, you know, that was my own fate. I just wanted an opportunity to play. And once that continued to happen, I was able to prove myself and become, you know, one of the first players that's that's picked when we're starting a, a pickup game. So um, you were used to playing with a you know regular size basketball. Uh, women's basketball is the ball's just like a little bit smaller, right? Yes. Well, back then it was the same size. So we we all played with the with the men's ball um, back in the day, and then I, I I believe once I went to high school at some point they changed the size of the ball. And I, I thought that was the worst thing ever. Why? Because I was just used to playing with, you know, the basketball that I grew up playing with. Um, it was, I mean, I, I had a hard time adjusting. I had a hard time adjusting to the to the women's ball because it was smaller, it was lighter, uh, and I, could, I couldn't control it as as easily as I did the men's ball because I was just so used to it. So you went on to play for the University of Virginia when you went to college there, and you were, uh, you know, it was an NCAA team. Um, I read that at UVA, it was the first time you were really in an atmosphere, you know, an environment where there are a lot of white people. You weren't used to that. Can you talk a little bit about the transition going from, you know, living in the housing projects in North Philly to being at UVA? Yeah, it, the housing projects that I grew up in, I mean, it was probably 
99% black. And then I, I go to UVA, and it's the first time that, you know, I'm outnumbered as far as, you know, black versus white or any other, you know, race. Um, and although, you know, I, I was I was a very shy young person. Like, I, I didn't talk a whole lot. I I just, I wasn't open to making new friends. I mean, I'm from Philly. I'm from North Philly. We just kind of stay in our lanes and we don't, we don't go outside of our comfort zone um, unless someone comes into our comfort zone. And for me, going to Virginia was a huge step outside of my comfort zone. And it took me a while to, to make the adjustment to, to be in an environment. You know, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't do well in school in the beginning um, because I just, I didn't know how to study. Um, I didn't, uh, I wasn't comfortable. Um, and then, you know, when I was threatened with, with getting kicked out of school, that's when my competitiveness kicked in. Like I never reverted to my competitiveness until my back, until I was challenged in that way. And then I tapped into being a competitor. So I looked at academics a lot differently once I had to. And if I didn't really want to be at Virginia, win a national championship, being in, you know, in that space, I would have given up. But I wanted to be in that space, and that's the thing that really drove me to doing better. How did you go from being inexpressive, not making eye contact, being kind of introverted, just expressing yourself through the game, to being a coach where you really have to communicate with people. I mean, you're probably part psychologist and therapist as well as, you know, basketball coach. And and you're probably shouting on the sidelines during the game. I mean, you have to be more extroverted and communicative as a coach. It really wasn't easy. And I, I find that just through my life, being uncomfortable, being uncomfortable, I found a way to grow. And I give that to our players. Like I am a, you know, like, I'll give you an example. Most of the players that I coach, their parents, they don't want them to hurt. Like they don't want them to be unhappy. They don't want them to go through life hurting or failing, should I say, failing. Bad game, bad grade. Just, just break up with your, you know, with your, with your boyfriend. Like their parents don't want them to go through that. And I am the direct opposite of their parents. Like I want them to do that. I, I want you to, to break up, have a breakup. I want you to have a bad game. I want you to fail a test because from from those moments, growth is taking place. You find a way to not have those repeat performances in, in those stages of your life. Um, so sometimes my players, they struggle with me because I don't, I don't treat them like their parents treat them. That's interesting. I balance their parents out. Coach Staley, it's just been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, greatly appreciate that. And, um, you know, I wish you many more championships. 
Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Dawn Staley is the coach of the South Carolina Gamecocks. In April, for the second time, she led the team to win the NCAA championship. Our interview was recorded last month at a Zoom event during which she received the WHYY Lifelong Learning Award. The event was organized and produced by Ellen Steele and Karen Smiles. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross. <laughs>